Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I'm so excited to be joined today by the award-winning, internationally renowned, and in-demand conductor of symphonic and operatic repertoire and writer, Mark Wigglesworth. His conducting skills and passions take him equally formidably from the music of Mozart all the way to the music of the present day. Mark Wigglesworth has some awe-inspiring recordings out featuring all 15 of the Shostakovich symphonies, Mahler's Sixth Symphony, Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, and many more that you should definitely check out immediately after listening to this podcast. And he's recently released an incredible book for conductors This is for beginning or seasoned conductors, all musicians, music lovers, or leaders in any field who want to be more connected to their ensembles and more influential. This is called The Silent Musician, Why Conducting Matters. Mark, I'm so excited to have you on One Symphony today. Thank you so much for doing this. And I just wanted to start out by asking you in this incredible book that I think everybody can get something out of, whether you love classical music or don't know anything about it. Can you talk about what surprised you that you discovered about conducting through the act of writing about it? That's a great question. Um, first of all, pleasure to meet you and to be on this uh, on this podcast uh, and to talk to anybody that's interested in learning a bit more about conducting. I'd like to think conductors will get something out of it, but it, it's essentially written for the music lover who goes to concerts and is curious about what's going on up there and what's the relationship and why, you know, how does it all work? And and I've always felt that it was mostly very explainable to the widest curiosities, how it works and and what the, the job is. And essentially by relating it to contexts that I think people do know, uh, one can discuss aspects of leadership I think in answer to your question, the best bits of the book are the bits that came to me whilst I was writing it. I've been doing the job for 30 years. And so the ideas have been sort of formulating in my mind for that long. And and obviously I'm sure you're the same. People ask you a lot of questions and, and you pretty much give similar answers. And so a lot of it was really just trying to refine what I've said a great many times in my life. But I think what was interesting was When I first pitched the book to the publisher, I wanted it to be called Conducting Relationships. And it was going to be a chapter on one's relationship with the composer, a chapter on one's relationship with the orchestra, and a chapter on relationship with soloists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. But as soon as I started to write it, I realized that that was only half the story of any particular subject. And it was a bit, well, arrogant, but also not particularly informative to only talk about one side of a relationship felt a bit self-centered, which conductors are not as self-centered as people might think. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I, but I think the bits that interested me most were trying to think about 
everything we do from somebody else's point of view. I mean, that sounds obvious, but what does a composer want from a conductor? What does an orchestral player want from a conductor? What does the audience want from a conductor? And and those were the things that really... Uh, the, the dangerous when you do the job to overthink it because there are so many different things that people want that you can't please everybody. And if you're worried about that, you're, pro- you're probably not going to please anybody. So, but writing the book gave me the space to give all the opinions, really, all the... So it's not, this is what I do and this is how it should be done. It, a lot of the book was, if you do this, that's the problem with that. Or if you do that, that's the advantage of that. One of the things that struck me in reading this book is I'm like, I wish I would have had this as a student like 10, 15 years ago. It would have solved a lot of problems. <laughs> so I think because we're very focused as we learn conducting, especially in school, and you you address this in the book on technique, like it's like the patterns or different subdivisions or different units of how to beat. And this is really the heart of it. You know, it's kind of like becoming a music director 90% of what you have to do is really like community relationships and just bringing people like I think your book lays out quite marvelously is just the things we have to focus on and the priorities symphonic organizations have to have to inspire new audiences. We are a connector. I write in the book that a little girl I used to know used to <laughs> think that's the name of my <laughs> job, which, which was a lovely sort of slip of the tongue, but it was yeah. it was very powerful because our job is to connect. And as you say, when we study, we are focused on connecting ourselves to the music and we're focused on connecting ourselves to the orchestra and the orchestra to the music and so on. Maybe we think about connecting to the audience, but I doubt it as a student. I mean, we don't get audiences as a student conductor for a start. <laughs> so that, that whole aspect is not really discussed. And it's still quite old school, I think, the vast majority of the training all over the world from what I can take by that I mean as you say it's based on sort of technique which is so individual really that it's hard to know how that is really taught but we have to learn a lot about what does a community need from its cultural institutions its orchestras and so on and if we are leading that orchestra or that cultural institution that is our role and you know our interpretation of a Brahms symphony is really just a small ultimately the most important, but nevertheless, more yeah. part of what we do. And why does an orchestra need a music director? Well, I'm not sure an orchestra does need a music director, but I think a community needs a music director mm. to lead the whole community's musical entertainment and pleasure and discovery. And I think it's very hard for orchestras to institutions to do that without an individual figurehead. But you're right to allude to the fact that we never get told that. What we also don't really get taught at colleges is, is the psychology of, of conducting. And that is partly necessitated by the fact that if we're working with student orchestras, that's a different psychology anyway. And that the professional orchestra has a particular type of personality and rhythm to their working life that we need to learn about and work out how to influence it. And that is, of course, very hard to do without professional musicians in front of you. I mean, really, you don't start learning the job until until you start doing the job, at which point you no longer have a teacher. So <laughs> it's tough in that respect. My wife is an Alexander Technique practitioner. You probably know a lot about that. 
Um, I immediately sit slightly better when you say that. (laughs) She's always attending these workshops and professional development and training courses. I did one of those um, last summer after kind of 10 years in the field, you know, never really having studied my baton technique, just kind of learning on the job. I think it's interesting that a lot of conductors, you don't see that as much. You don't see kind of like take two weeks away to do professional development. When we do that, it's our own. You know, it's not like we get with other conductors. Can you talk about maybe why that doesn't happen or the importance of that? Yeah. Um, No. I mean, (laughs) I can talk about it, but I don't know. Well, I have some ideas. We're all very insecure. Um, (laughs) And I think we're very apprehensive around each other. And I think that's... um, sad and a massive missed opportunity because it's such a personal profession one is so individual when one does it and one should be that the experience of one conductor with one orchestra in one piece is i wouldn't say irrelevant but not necessarily relevant to how one would approach that same orchestra in that same piece yourself Hmm. and so we are i think wary of taking too much advice from our peers because it can simply create issues that would never have manifested themselves in the first place. I mean, I listen to a great number of recordings, audio only. I I, I find it very difficult to watch on YouTube because I find the physicality of another conductor, I get a bit stressed out by the influence that that might have on me. Huh, interesting. Oh, oh, they did that gesture there. That was great. And then yeah, when you yeah. do it, you, you see that gesture, which is obviously unhelpful for you. But when it's purely audio, I find it, in, you know, invaluable. And Spotify and, and so on is, is such a godsend for really studying all these conductors' views and opinions. And, and I love it. And I don't think that, you know, there's a school of thought that says that you lose your individuality if you do that. I disagree. I think if you lose your individuality when you do that, then you'd never, then you'd have lost it in front of the orchestra as well, frankly. So I think, I think that's not a danger. And there's so much to learn from what other conductors do. But I'm not sure it, you learn it by talking to them so much. When you were young, you said you attended a lot of rehearsals, as a lot of young conductors do. But you said you don't think you learned that much. I went to the great conductors rehearsal, yeah. you know, and, and they were great because they were unique and they had unique solutions and unique ideas. And I loved it. Uh, and I loved the, um, I was young and I thought it, the whole thing was unbelievably exciting. But I would have learned more from watching, what's the word? Um, <laughs> well, you know, less, less good conductors. I would have learned what not to do. And in a way, if you learn what not to do, you are left not only with good stuff, but good stuff that is really you. So when you see somebody doing something that, whoops, that that was a mistake, either psychological or physical or musical, then you make sure you don't make that mistake. But what you do do is still your own. I don't know if that makes sense. By stripping away things that you see that are don't work, you're left with who you are rather than adding on, oh, I saw... I saw that conductor do that. It was fantastic. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that you are going to have the same result by even doing the same gesture. I've suffered from copycat syndrome. I I will readily admit, I think some conducting challenges that I've had over the years, maybe mostly technical, boil down to 
seeing a gesture and a conductor that I loved. And, and I admit I, I watch, uh, I've watched a lot of videos and trying that gesture. And of course it's not me because I haven't lived that conductor's life. I haven't had those experiences and it's kind of a circuitous route to get to myself as opposed to trying things that other conductors do, which doesn't, you're right, doesn't always work. But that raises the very interesting question of what is the gesture? And the gesture has to be in part a reaction to what you hear, apart from the very first upbeat, which obviously you have not yet heard anything. Every other gesture is in part created by how the musicians responded to the previous gesture. That's one of the reasons we can't really practice at home or anywhere, because practicing a gesture in absence of of the musicians responding to that gesture, it's meaningless because every musician or every orchestra will respond differently to the same gesture. And so a conductor's gesture, not only is it particular to themselves, but it's particular to that orchestra on that day. I think there is a value to physicalizing your, your preparation to a certain extent, because it connects you to the score you're learning. I'm not saying you stand up and give a full physical performance in silence when you've got the score in front of you, but I, I think maintaining a physical connection to the music as you study it is very useful so that the first time you're not suddenly moving is in front of the musicians. But the reality of what you actually do to create the sound is based on what you've just heard. And, uh, you know, some orchestras need, need to be left to fly and some others need to be pushed around a bit. I love that. And you talk about the less you do, the more you can hear. And also that, that a young conductor might go to an orchestra rehearsal and not have heard anything at the, at the end of the three hours. Well, <laughs> I know that from my personal experience. Of course you hear it in the most superficial sense, but are you really listening? And we cannot do more than one thing at a time, humans, but we can change super quick from listening to leading, to listening to leading, to listening to leading, so quick that it feels like it's simultaneous. But what's interesting is we're constantly asking the musicians in the orchestra to listen and play at the same time. And you realize it's easy to say that. (laughs) It's obvious to say that. But actually, you say listen, and not, not just so that they can accompany, but they still need to make music themselves whilst they are accompanying an oboe solo or sticking together in, in, in a section. So they have to listen and play at the same time. And therefore, we have to do the same. And it is what we have that they don't have, although one underestimates this to a certain extent, is we have the stress of being the individual in charge. And I think what's so hard for not just a young conductor, frankly, I mean, it it doesn't go away, really, I think. The responsibility to lead the room in every sense is a big responsibility that one should embrace. And what does it mean to lead the room psychologically or even on a very practical sense of, you know, timing and getting to the end of the music at the right time of the rehearsal and so on. But players also have their own stresses and because they're a group, we tend to not notice them. But it is an intensely personal experience making music and we shouldn't underestimate that musicians in orchestras find that challenging as well. And I think that's one of the reasons conductors get a lot of flack sometimes because it's the only way really an individual member of an orchestra can handle their own particular pressures. 
Leeds now conducting Beethoven's Fidelio, which is incredible, of course, socially distanced and, and very safe. Can you talk about first day of rehearsal? Then that could be operatic or symphonic. What is your biggest priority? Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I've been very lucky. I mean, like, you know, I had zero musical experiences from February to August. And like, you know, all of us, that was very challenging in mm -hmm. so many different ways. But I felt very lucky to have been able to get back to a few things. I've done a handful of things all in this with the musicians all two meters apart. And here are the fascinating things. Firstly, the musicians don't talk to each other because mm -hmm. they're on their own. And so the efficiency of the rehearsal without that general kind of hubbub going on, which I actually quite like, you know, it is absolutely fascinating how quickly and calmly, frankly, one works when everybody is in that isolated spot. So that's a huge plus. And there's some fascinating things that are being said to me individually by some of the players who are saying, string players particularly saying, they love being on their own because they can have the stand exactly where they want it. They, have room, <laughs> they really have room to play. But here's the interesting thing. The most interesting thing comment that I've had so far, which I thought was fascinating, is a player said to me, it's so nice not having to worry about what my stand partner thinks. Wow. And I thought that was, wow, you know, that's what going back to what I was saying about we tend to forget as conductors that orchestral musicians have their own stresses and so on. That I thought was fascinating, that they actually felt freer. Now, problem with the distance is that, of course, they can only really hear themselves. And so although the ensemble sorts itself out relatively quickly because they're professional and capable, and one can hear that it's not together and why, and therefore you fix it, and that comes sooner than one might think, actually. But what is more challenging and actually a more interesting challenge is for the conductors is to enable the musicians to really play, to mm. really express themselves, mm -hmm. which they've been used to doing as a group. And now they have to trust that their individual contribution is the right level. Um, I don't just mean volume, I mean emotional commitment. That I think is the greatest challenge for conductors in these COVID times is to persuade the individual musicians to function as a group from the point of view of emotional commitment. When they're all close together, it's like, as you know, it's like a sort of wave and you know, it, they join it, they're, they're riding that wave. Mm -hmm. And there are the occasional passengers riding that wave, but essentially that wave is created by the mass of forces involved. Put them all individually and there's no wave. But what's interesting is there's also no opportunity to be a passenger. So it's all right, actually. And it, of course, the real problem is we're just limited with repertoire because one can't have a gigantic orchestra. It, it takes up a lot of space. But the other thing orchestras are liking, particularly the British orchestras who work so hard and do so much repertoire, is that they can actually hear themselves play sound in this, you know, we're doing a lot of Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven with orchestras that they might normally play Shostakovich, Mahler, Bruckner. And they're loving the opportunity to really kind of do a health check of their own playing uh, what during the rehearsals and, and really take care of the quality of their own sound, which they can hear. Beethoven, Fidelio, this is not something that is really that commonly done. Beethoven's reason for being in many ways was to get in people's heads and create positive change, whether that may be musical, political, or socially. This is the only opera he wrote. 
it basically centers around the freeing of political prisoners. This could be written today. And of course, you delve into these kinds of musical, political composers and time periods, of course, with your Shostakovich symphony set. Can you kind of talk about what the relevance of a composer and maybe even a conductor's job is in terms of creating change, moving the ball forward in terms of progress? Your question goes to the heart of what is music for? Why do we have music in our lives? We have music in our lives not because we like the tunes and we get pleasure from those harmonies and so on. It's because we want to, as a species, communicate with each other. And the reason, I don't know what it's like, well, I know a little bit what it's like in the States, but in Britain, social distancing, I mean, there are, of course, there are people who just want to break the rules because that's their personality and they want to assert their individuality. But leaving that category of people aside, for most people, social distancing is a fundamental challenge to who we are. We are not meant to be on our own. We are meant to be communities. We are meant to gather together. And that's our species, is music was a tool that enabled us to gather together. And we use music to bond. And whether it's religious or sport or parties, music is a way that large groups of people unify. And the world has been silent this year, essentially, and we haven't had that force that brings us together, which is why it's been so painful for the whole planet, frankly. I mean, of course, there's the people who've, who are sick and who've lost income and have died, and that tragedy is, is obviously the most real one. But for the vast majority of people who have been lucky to so far remain directly unaffected are deeply affected by the inability to share things with each other. What I think we can take as a positive from this year is proof that music matters. It's proof that people want to come to performances because things that are going on sale with socially distant audiences and therefore admittedly fewer numbers, but nevertheless, they sell out immediately. And, and all the streaming that's being done, fantastic. And thank God it's happened. But it, for me, it proves that it's not the experience and that sitting at home, listening or watching isn't the point of music as far as I'm concerned. It's mm -hmm. about sharing it together. Any large group of musicians need an individual to lead that. And similarly, a community of music lovers need an individual to lead that. And I think our role in enabling us to come back together, whenever that time is, it'll be different times in different parts of the world, but it's incredibly privileged. I've, I mean, I feel humbled being given the opportunity this week, for instance, to lead, uh, I guess there's about 80 of us in total, through this extraordinary Beethoven experience. And I think there's a possibility that one had taken that for granted before. I know I had, so I wouldn't like to comment on anybody else. But <laughs> of course, one knows we're lucky to conduct and we're lucky to be trusted with those choices. But my goodness, we really are. <laughs> when you take it away and you realise, and, and it will only be more valuable, frankly, I think. And that's, you know, when all, everybody looks for silver linings and I don't want to diminish the tragedy that is still ongoing. But if there is a silver lining, it's that unquestionably communities need music.
Has there been anything that you've discovered about yourself, maybe extra musically in the pandemic, that had it not happened, you would have never known? I think it is the realization that I love it. And that might be surprising because, of course, I sort of loved it before. But it is a difficult job. I mean, I know it looks very glamorous and quote, powerful and thrilling, but it is challenging and it is stressful. And the responsibility is huge if you choose to take that upon yourself. And of course, the pluses have always uh, made it worth it. But I, I think I was in danger of just feeling very tired by it all. And having had this opportunity to really reassess what an extraordinary thing music is, and people listening to it, and that we are charged with being in the middle of that. I feel a whole new sort of sense of purpose and good fortune. It's interesting. I won't name the book, but I read fairly recently a conductor's papers or biography. And this particular conductor said that conducting is not fun. He can't stand when somebody, when he's about to go on the stage, you can tell him toy, toy, toy. You can even tell him break a leg, but don't tell him have fun. I thought that that's an interesting dichotomy. And I too, over these months have been, yes, you appreciate everything, not just music, but you appreciate breathing. People who get this disease or people yeah. who can't breathe, or you appreciate the sunshine, you appreciate food, like people who are working their hearts off just to bring you food or just people taking out the, the trash. That brings us back to Beethoven in a way, because as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, this was meant to be his year. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> anniversary. I mean, he was so looking forward. Surprise! To <laughs> and his music. I was planning to do all nine symphonies in a very intensive period with one particular orchestra, and, and that obviously didn't happen, which was disappointing. But I did have the opportunity to really study them and spent a lot of time re-engaging in Beethoven's life and work. And we know he kind of was um, deaf <laughs> to people but he heard humanity, so he really could touch. I think it's the reason that, you know, without wanting to be too specific, most Poles name him the most popular composer. You know, that's a separate party game to work that out. But he is unquestionably speaks to so many people because he goes so deep into who we are as a species. And he's not that interested in who we are as superficial people. It's one of the reasons Fidelio as an opera, is slightly problematic because these characters are representations of emotions rather than subtly described Mozartian characters. Mm -hmm. It's much more um, archetypal in a way. I don't think that makes it less great. I think it's extraordinary. But Beethoven understood who we were as a species and what we needed. And I find that profoundly moving. And in this year of all years... Do you think he understood that on a conscious level or he was just kind of being lived? He didn't really have a conscious level because he was deaf. Hmm. This is what's so interesting. I think he was so into his own world. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't don't want to use the wrong words. Unconscious, subconscious, I get that there's differences. But he wasn't interested in the day-to-day life because he couldn't be. And so he was forced to be the essence of himself. And what's interesting is the essence of all of us is what connects us. We're all different on the surface. We all have different specific things that make us individuals. But what makes us all the same is the deepest aspects of our emotions.
What is your process when you're at this point in your life, probably different than it was two years ago and five years ago and 10 years ago, if you're going to conduct the Beethoven set? Can you kind of give us an overview of what you do once you hear that? One of the things what I discovered with learning them is all nine pieces are equal. And it's just so happened that three, five, seven, and nine, perhaps six, have resonated with the public. And they resonate with the public because they kind of have a, an overt narrative that we can understand. Triumph out of adversity or the hero and, you know. But actually all nine symphonies are extraordinary works of art. And if he hadn't written the Ninth Symphony, if he died before writing the Ninth Symphony, we would be playing the eighth every week and marveling <laughs> at, at this extraordinary last testament of this great, great composer. And, and even number one, you know, I think I've, I've really discovered the power of each individual. You know, it's like the children he never had, and each one is different, but they're all equal. I don't think you can say that about any other composer's hmm. uh, symphonic legacy. Do you have a favorite of the nine symphonies or the eight symphonies? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I, I, I think um, that's the point, really. I, the, I mean, I think if I was asked just to choose one, it would probably be the sixth, because I think there's something about his connection with nature that is so deeply affecting and humbling. There's a reason they're played a lot. And I think we are charged with leading communities through repertoire and so on. And on the one hand, we shouldn't be averse to playing Beethoven Five every year. It really is a phenomenal achievement of, of a human being. And the only problem with it being played a lot is if it gets played badly as a result. But we shouldn't mind that audiences love it. But at yeah. the same time, our role is to say, you know, if you love five, you really will love two or eight or four or one. We have to, on the one hand, give audiences what they want, but at the same time, we have to give them the opportunity to want more. How do you make Beethoven's Fifth sound like it was composed hot off the press? Well, I don't think you ask that question. I mean, you're right that that's what you have to do, but the danger of trying to make it sound new is that you impose. And I think the one thing I've got better at over the years is imposing less on pieces. When I started, I felt a need to somehow assert myself, my own opinion on mm -hmm. it. And although I still have a strong personal opinion about how something should go, I, I'd like to think that I channel it slightly more sophisticatedly <laughs> and, that, and that one's not aware that, oh, this is, this is what Mark thinks. It's like, well, that, how does that help anybody? So I think you look at the score and you come to it naively in a way, you see what it says, and uh, you do it. And if you really do it with all sincerity, I guarantee you it will sound fresh. Where it won't sound fresh is if you, if you haven't been able to um, free yourself from the traditions of other people's performances. Not that those choices other people are making are wrong, but unless they're your choices, they won't sound sincere. And I think people can tell, they probably won't be able to articulate this, but I think they can tell whether the conductor or, or any musician is delivering their own opinion or a secondhand one. I love your concept of distinguishing silence from sound. And I think that's something that Beethoven does incredibly well. Of course, his Fifth Symphony, it starts out of silence, like the silence is part of the drama. And you talk about he's doing this all the way back to his first symphony in the last bar. 
he puts a, a bar of rest. That reminded me when I was a student, I, I was conducting that symphony. And I think I probably, I actually ended up conducting that bar, but not intentionally. <laughs> Um, And so, yeah, but, but did, but Haydn was using silence and, and to some extent Mozart, did Beethoven invent that or did he just kind of solidify it in all the other things like adding the trombones, the contrabassoon, the piccolo, um, connecting the third and fourth movements? Is that a Beethovenian thing? I think there's always been silence in music. I think Beethoven is the first music that, first composer that needs conducting. And the reason I think that is, I think he's the first composer who really tells a story either as an individual or as a narrator. It's not specifically programmatic, but it is about Beethoven in the way that Mozart is not about Mozart or Haydn is not about Haydn. So I feel there's a a personality there that is speaking to us and that arguably therefore needs a personality to channel that through to an audience. And I think our control of silence is a very personal but powerful tool, which any orator will use to their strength. We don't really have any great orators anymore, but if you think of Martin Luther King or John Kennedy or Winston Churchill, or you know these very charismatic and powerful leaders, they use silence as a way of defining what they have just said or what they're about to say. And so I think our control of a Beethoven silence is, is, well, we actually have more control over the silence than we do over the note because the musicians are involved in the note. We're the only people who are controlling that silence in a way. And so our engagement in it must never be haphazard or casual. There's something about silence too, that can be very disconcerting. Like as a Maybe as an orator, and I'm not a, obviously not a trained actor, but there's something about silence that makes us want to fill it. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> there was silence. I'll, I was, I'll, I'll edit that silence out, by the no, way. Don't no, I'm just kidding. I know. Because I was, I was making the point that the silence See, has a life that yeah. dies if it's extended too long. So what's really interesting, I think, is how one as a conductor or performer um, has to listen to that silence, to know what its life is. I mean, obviously, if it's just a rest in, in, in music that one isn't in control of that, but if let's say it's, let's say it's a, it's a fermata or, or even the silence between movements and so on, the ones that you literally are in control of, that you have to fill them And because if they are empty, then people get self-conscious and it becomes about something other than itself. Listening to the silence is really an important part of of our job and to somehow sense its quality. And that's one of the reasons why audiences are as much part of the performance as performers are because their contribution to that silence I mean, I've, there's plenty of times when one's taken a, imagined a pause and somebody's coughed in the middle of it. Well, then what do you do? That is no longer a silence. And so you have to react. You make whatever choice you think right at that moment. But it's a living, breathing thing, the silence. Somebody said the measure of an engaging performance that will live on forever in people's memories, that is determined by 
the coughing or the lack of coughing. First, I hear that and I think, well, if people have a bug in their throat, it's, that's, that has nothing to do with the music, but there's something to be said about that by holding the space to where not even a cough is permissible on a spiritual level. Well, the cough is a symbol of somebody not listening because you know that, well, I'm not talking about the cough that somebody tried to suppress and failed and we've all been there. So, you know, I'm sympathetic to that situation. Yeah. But we, we know the difference. The one that literally is, yeah. is literally done by somebody who is clearly advertising that they are bored or <laughs> burned out, that ruins the room. It's not that that moment couldn't cope with the noise. It's that we've all now know that this room is not unified. And that's why it's such a downer, you know. I actually, I say this in the book, I actually find mobile phones going off less annoying because I don't literally mean that, but a mobile phone going off is just somebody's mistake of having mm -hmm. left it on. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's not a reflection of their engagement in the performance. But somebody coughing or opening a suite, all of that stuff is just a symbol of them not being part of the performance. You give a great account of the 1829 performance of the St. Matthew Passion with Felix Mendelssohn conducting. If you could be a fly on the wall, who would you most like to see conducting? I know you mentioned that you, you would rather listen to conductors, but if you could see conductors, would you most rather see Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Mahler, or Wagner? Yes, well, I think Wagner. I mean, Mahler would have been sort of extraordinary, but I think we can sort of imagine what Mahler how he would have conducted because his music is so obvious is so physical yeah. his music is so physical that we sort of know how he would have we can see that somehow i mean even if it is some sort of hollywood stereotype we can sort of imagine that but wagner i would be fascinated to know how he guided not only musicians through his own music but through beethoven because i think wagner really started the need for total flexibility and fluidity of tempo and pacing I mean, I, there's not many reports of, of him as a conductor. I mean, clearly he had the ego for it. But what he was like, I would be fascinated and I'd be fascinated to watch him have the freedom to move music without you noticing that it's moving. You gave a couple of great Brahms and Wagner quotes. Brahms said the metronome is of no value. And I guess in that way, it's not a way that he took the torch from Beethoven, who went back at the end of his life and assigned metronome markings to many of his works. But Brahms said the metronome is of no value. I've never believed that my blood and a mechanical instrument go well together. <laughs> and then Wagner said, tempo is the soul of music and in all music, not just his own. He believed it should be perpetually modified. Brahms also said that every passage or musical phrase has its own inherent tempo. How do you, as a musician, determine tempo, number one? And number two, do you find yourself generally increasing tempo or decreasing as you mature? I think tempo, ultimately, that is our job. I mean, you know, it's true that most of our energy is spent with the psychology of it all. And, but when you think about the job, most people will think, well, they decide how fast it's going to go, right? And our control of tempo is, I think, the thing we have most control over. I've learned to not really think about tempo, but to think about character. And that if you get the character of the music right, the tempo will be right. Like a great novel, it's character that determines plot, not the other way around. You sense the plot is inevitable because that is how a character would act. So I feel that the way to 
choose a tempo or to judge a tempo is character. And the advantage of that is that you are free to all sorts of different tempos depending on the orchestra, because one particular orchestra's way of playing one particular character might be in a different speed to another. But if the character is the same, the speed doesn't matter so much. What's also nice about that is you are connecting more with the inner workings of the music rather than worrying about what the speed is from the start. Having said that, of course, your real job is to balance all that, all those characters into something that has an overall structure. And you do need to be conscious of where you're going and where is the climax of that Brahms symphony? Where is the climax of that melody? So I wouldn't put tempo first. And also as, you know, tempo varies one's heartbeat, the time of day. And I'd say this in the book, I used to listen to performances of mine that felt, when I listened back to them, that they felt unrecognisable to the ones that I was experiencing at the time, which was partly just the nerves of a young conductor, but also because I'm in a different place when I'm hearing it. But I, the audience were in the in the room at the time, not with me listening back at 11 o'clock the next morning. So one has to be open to how it, what it does actually sound like. And that's the other thing that I think matters with our choice of tempo. If you go into a room thinking this is the tempo, the danger is you forget to listen to actually what it sounds like. And how an orchestra plays a tempo is more important than what the tempo is. wanted to thank you also because you did a great shout out for the left-handed conductors among us instead of saying like many conducting texts and teachers have said that the baton goes in the right hand you said there's a theory that suggests that the right hand is for beating time and the left hand is for expression or the other way around for left -handed <laughs> I really appreciate that well you're welcome I mean there's no reason why it should be any impediment at all you're just left-handed are you I'm definitely left-handed, yeah. Yeah. Have you, had, have you had players sort of say to you, I'm challenged by this? Mostly teachers, I think, because they're trying to, because conducting is, you know, a challenging profession, and they're trying to get rid of any possible trait that could be seen as an obstacle. Um, and early on, a few players, I think in like workshops or something, a player had mentioned it. And then the, the teacher said, oh, I didn't even notice. But I think once I think it's more about convincing and doing all the things that you talked about in your book is being being with the players and supporting them and inspiring well, being them. Natural, you have to be natural to your own body. What's comfortable. Yeah. I mean, unlike an instrumentalist, 
who has an instrument that needs a very specific way of being played to, to sound. Our body is our instrument really, and, and we have to be sincere in our connection with our own body. You kind of touched a little bit on this, but I wanted to maybe clarify it. In the book, you talked about how conductors have a Facebook of musical expression. I I assume what you're referring to is not the Facebook that everybody's (laughs) thinking of, while at the same time making sure it is the music's emotional story, so not our own that we're reflecting. Can you elucidate the difference between the music's emotional story and our own? And secondly, how is conducting like or unlike acting? I think it's probably rather similar to great acting. And what I mean about great acting is you don't realize they're acting. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, don't, you shouldn't act, you should behave. And that, that a great actor will go onto the stage and they won't be acting, they'll just be doing it. So there's a sort of total identification with the text. And so I think that's the similarity with the conductor is if is if you're doing a piece of music about love, you have to express that love, but nobody wants the conductor to be showing them that they love them. <laughs> <laughs> so it isn't personal in that way. And yet at the same time, it's deeply sincere. And one of the reasons I can't watch myself is because I find all of that very awkward. You know, those emotions being portrayed to see that I find that disconcerting. But when you are doing it, I do think it is so fundamentally important that you express emotion. And so many players will say they look at the face and not the hands anyway. Mm -hmm. It always comes back to sincerity. And that if you are sincere about the purity of that love, then you're not going to over-personalise it. If you're really honest about what this music is, then it's not about you. I don't know how you're um, covering your face, um, but I've used both a shield and face masks and mostly face masks in the rehearsals. You realize how much the eyes can actually do because that's all you have with a face mask. Yes. The protocols that I've been involved with is everybody wears a mask until they sit down or until the conductor takes their place. You can take your mask off once the rehearsal starts. 
that's what we've been doing. I would find it very difficult to conduct in the mask for the reasons that you just said, because it makes you realize that it isn't just the eyes <laughs> that tell the story. And you also realize how hard you're working sometimes. So you might need to take Richard Strauss's, a little bit of Richard right. Strauss's medicine. <laughs> yes. Well, Mark, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. The book is The Silent Musician, Why Conducting Matters. I recommend anybody who's interested in not only the relationship between the conductor and orchestra and the community, but anybody outside of the profession who wants to further enlighten their leadership skills, pick this up. Thank you so much, Mark, and I will wish you all the best in your production of Fidelio, which I'm incredibly excited to hear about. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. It's been uh, wonderful and very grateful. Thank you to all the incredible record labels and performers who made this episode possible. All selections were conducted by our guest, Mark Wigglesworth. The excerpts from the 5th and 10th symphonies of Dmitry Shostakovich were performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales on the BIS record label. That's B-I-S. The piano concertos of Johannes Brahms were performed by pianist Stephen Huff and the Mozarteum Orchester Salzburg. The 13th Symphony excerpt of Dmitry Shostakovich features bass soloist Jan Hendrik Rutering and the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic Orchestra. You can find Mark's book, The Silent Musician, Why Conducting Matters, published by University of Chicago Press, wherever you buy books. Thank you for joining us. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org. You can find Mark at markwigglesworth.com. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being part of the music. Thank you.